Leviticus chapter 23. Last week we began a new study series on giving, and uh, from your comments and your emails that you sent, uh, I think the Lord really spoke to us, didn't he? Um, Really challenged on some things, and we saw how the Lord, uh, overarching principle is the Lord wants us more than he wants our money. That doesn't mean he doesn't want our money, but he wants us more than anything that we have, and that as disciples of Christ living out our faith, uh, we're called, as Paul said, to expend everything for him, to, to be willing to give everything to the Lord in every aspect of our life. And the bottom line is that the Lord has to be first in every area. The Lord has to be first in every area. If we get that principle, that spiritual truth into our hearts, if that becomes how we live, we won't have to worry about whether we have enough giving. We won't have to worry about whether we have enough people to serve in nursery or whether we have enough people to go reach out and, and touch people for Christ. If our hearts are right, if Christ is first in everything, none of that will ever be a problem. So that's what we laid as kind of the foundation for our studies about giving. And this is a message um, I think that the Lord has really conveyed uh, since the start of time, this is this is throughout Scripture. From the outset, in Genesis one, He created us for a relationship with Him. He created us to have a relationship that was ongoing, and that was ideal, and it was untainted until man chose to rebel, until man chose to sin. and And God could have said, "You know what? Bad experiment. I'm done there. I'm through with it. It's clear that man doesn't want to obey me." But God is so gracious. And he has shown his grace and his mercy to mankind all throughout history. And, and the fact that he's willing to save, the fact that he is willing to pull us out of bondage. You can go back to, to Noah and the ark. You can look at Abraham and Isaac. You can look at Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Um, all the way up to the sacrificial system, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then Jesus. Jesus being the ultimate example that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want to send anybody to hell. He doesn't want anybody to live in separation from him. He wants everyone to be saved. And and the most obvious example of that, obviously, is the cross and the empty tomb. But all throughout the Old Testament, this was also the message. And, And Israel, when we study them, part of the reason we have the Old Testament is to show that we can't save ourselves. We have 39 books that make it crystal clear that we're not righteous, we're not holy, we don't want to listen to God, that that there's a a rebelliousness in mankind's spirit, um, that we want to be self-sufficient, we want to negotiate the terms of whether we're going to obey or not, Uh, we want to look at alternatives to the true God, that that we, we just want to just take God for granted that we want to ignore him, that we want to live our own life without him. And as God is merciful and God leads and God provides, uh, there's still this this attitude uh, within our human hearts, within our human nature, that we don't want anything to do with God. Now, God through the law and through the Old Testament confronted that mindset. And while he showed his power and authority, he also showed his love and his mercy and his provision. And as Israel waffles back and forth, whether they're going to obey God, whether they're going to listen to God or not, God consistently shows his grace and his mercy. And on those rare occasions when Israel actually listened, 
when they are actually kind of had their heart in the right place, then the Lord in, in passages of Scripture would really emphasize both what He had done and also what He expected of them going forward. And God, because he knows that we're forgetful creatures, right? I was talking to somebody before the service and said, why is it that when you get to your 50s, you walk into a room, you're like, why did I come in here? Like, what, what's going on? You, you guys that are in your 20s, you're like, that'll never happen to me. Yeah, it will. It will. And it also happened that one day I wake up, you're like, why is everything blurry? I can't see anything. Where do, where do I hold my butt? It happens. Trust me. So we're forgetful, right? We forget what we're doing and we forget how good the Lord is. So God did something really wonderful in the Old Testament. He established tangible reminders. And there were seven feasts or seven festivals of remembrance that God set up to remind Israel, look at what I've done. Now let me give you these and I'm going to read them quickly so you don't have to write them all down. We may at some point, because we don't have time this morning, we may do a a study on these on a Sunday morning because I think it would be fascinating. But the seven feasts were Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, these seven festivals all aligned around the spring and the fall harvest. And what that was designed to do was to remind them of God's provision and remind them of God's ongoing protection. But even more symbolically than just reminding them, I've been good to you, these seven feasts, and this is why I want to do a Sunday study someday, these seven feasts symbolized and foreshadowed the work of Christ. So what Christ was going to do in redeeming us uh, as of the Gospels, God sets up in the Old Testament a picture of that, a a foreshadowing, a, a kind of, hey, look at what's coming down the line in setting up these festivals. And in doing that, they symbolize not only Jesus coming to intercede and to die on the cross and be the Passover lamb and redeem us, but they also point us to the second coming of Christ, which is ahead, in which Christ, you remember the last feast was the Feast of Tabernacles. The tabernacle was what? We named our church Tabernacle, right? Everybody know you're in a tabernacle, right? The reason we love that name is the tabernacle in the Old Testament is where the presence of God would literally come down and reside among the people. And as we prayed about the name of the church, we thought, what better statement than a place where the presence of God comes down and where we're in the presence of God every week. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles was a recognition of that. When Christ comes for the second coming, the Bible says that he will be tabernacled among his people. In other words, his presence now will come and be among us. So it's a beautiful picture of God setting up and establishing what Jesus is going to do. Now, for the sake of our study this morning, we're going to briefly look at the first three Okay, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and what I really want to concentrate on this morning in terms of our study on giving is the Feast of first fruits. okay? So chapter 23 of the book of Leviticus, let's start in verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give to you, and when you reap its harvest, then you will bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest." He will wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. 
Now on the day when you wave the sheath, you shall offer a male lamb one year old without defect for a burnt offering for the Lord. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, with its drink offering a fourth of a hint of wine. Until this same day, until you've brought in the offering of your God, you shall neither eat bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. Now, what's the context? Because we always want context, right? Where is Israel? Israel is between Egypt and the promised land. We know they got out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. We know they're going to go into the promised land. We studied it this fall in the book of Joshua. So now you're in the in-between time. And the book of Leviticus is where God gives them the law. Levites were the priests. So he's giving the law to the Levites. Leviticus, okay? So, so there's a, a law that God's giving all throughout this book that is designed to teach them the holy standard for living. This is what God says we must live like. This is what God says he expects of his people. Now Israel's default their, their innate nature was not to do this. Their innate nature was self-sufficiency and rebellion and ingratitude. So God makes his presence clear. He leads them by day, uh, by the, by the uh, cloud of fire. He, uh, excuse me, by the cloud of smoke. He leads them by night by the cloud of fire. They set up the tabernacle. His presence come down. He wants them to know, I'm with you. I'm helping you. I'm leading you. I'm going to bless you. But for that to happen, you need to obey the law. Now, Israel completely fails at this. And that failure shows not only the holiness of God, but, but the unmistakable picture of our ability, inability to save ourselves. So within the law, God establishes the sacrificial system. Everybody with me so far? All right, the sacrificial system was designed where the blood of the sacrifice they would take, as you see here in verse uh, 12, okay, which is a picture of Jesus. You take, take the young lamb, the, the spotless lamb, and you, you kill it and you shed its blood on the altar as a sacrifice, as a payment for sin. And when you do that, when you put that on my mercy seat, I will then pour out my mercy and I'll forgive you of your sin now that was established in the Passover and we know that well the book of Exodus Israel's last night in Egypt what does God say he says take a male lamb kill it put its blood on the wooden doorposts as a sign that you are covered by the blood and my spirit will pass over every house and where he sees the blood on the doorpost, you're covered. I won't take the firstborn son. But where there's no blood, you're not covered and that house will have its firstborn son killed. A picture of the cross, right? So the son of God comes down. He acts as the sacrificial spotless lamb. He's killed. His blood is poured out as he hangs on a wooden cross and he is sacrificed for us as the Passover lamb. So the night before Je the night Jesus is betrayed, what does he do? He celebrates the Passover with his disciples and he says, "This is my body that's given for you. This is my blood that's shed for you. It's the new covenant now. It's not the old Passover. This is the new Passover because I'm the Passover lamb." 
And he says, take it and eat it as an acceptance that I am the Passover lamb. Because whereas the first son of creation, Adam, brought in sin, I am now the second Adam. I am the new creation. Beautiful picture. Beautiful, beautiful picture. So now by trusting in Jesus, the new Passover lamb, we can be freed from judgment and sin forever. This is the wideness of God's mercy. We should be blown away every day by the fact of God's mercy. That he wants to restore this relationship that's been broken with him because of sin and he wants to impart his holiness. Listen now, he wants to impart his holiness onto and into our lives. So when you look back at this text we just read, when he sets up these festivals, notice in verse two, verse three, verse four, verse seven, and verse eight, that's five times in seven verses, right? We know repetition means what? Pay attention. So five times in seven verses, God says these festivals are holy convocations. They're holy convocations. Now that word means a sacred assembly. It means an intentional time that's set aside to remember the faithfulness of the Lord and to thank him for it. And as we come to to remember and thank the Lord for his faithfulness, we're supposed to consecrate or sanctify ourselves before him. So what are we doing today? This is a holy convocation. This is a sacred assembly. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. God's not off in some distant universe this morning. He says, listen, if you're going to gather together and you're going to praise me and you're going to read my word and study and call on my name, I'm, I'm there. I'm absolutely there. So this is a holy assembly this morning, which means that as we come to this tabernacle, we're not supposed to come kind of thoughtlessly or carelessly or flippantly like, well, I guess I'll go this morning. I'll just kind of show up and hey, no, we're supposed to come with our hearts sanctified, humble, grateful, ready to enter into the presence of the Lord, ready to praise him, ready to to honor him and and receive the word that he's going to give us and ready to hear from his spirit. And then 1 Corinthians 16 says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside and save in order to give to the work of the Lord, which means that giving is part of the sacred assembly. Giving is part of the holy act of worship. So in the same way we're supposed to come carefully and thoughtfully and sanctified and humbly, he says you're supposed to bring your offering to me, not flippantly, not what do I have on the wallet this morning? I'll just toss in a cup. No, we're supposed to give with intentional thought. It's as much an act of worship, how wonderful, raising our hands, closing our eyes, singing praise to the Lord, or praying at the end of the service with tears coming down, or fellowshipping, or studying in the Word, and listening to the Holy Spirit. Giving is as much an act of worship as that. So we're supposed to pray about what to bring. We're supposed to prepare our offering, whether it's writing a check or giving online or whatever the case may be. We're supposed to prepare that. And as we do that, we're supposed to be open to the fact that God may say, you need to give more. Now hear me. I'm not saying, come on now, second offering. Let's. You know me better than that. I'm just telling you what the word says. 
And the word says, and this is the overarching principle for today at Leviticus 23. The word says we are to give to him first before we give to anything else. I'm going to say it again because I want you to get it. We're supposed to give to him first before we give to anything else. In verses 4 to 8, look back at it. He says, commemorate the Passover. We know what that is. Commemorate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a reminder of when they were in Egypt and they didn't have anything. And God says, as you're celebrating the Passover, make bread without yeast because we don't have time for the yeast to rise. You're about to leave. You're going to get out of slavery. And yeast in the Bible always represents sin. So he says, make unleavened bread, make it without the yeast. It's going to be flat. It's not going to taste like much, but this is what I want you to do because I want you to be pure. I want you to get out of bondage and I want you to be ready to live in the righteousness that I provided. So there's Passover, there's unleavened bread, and then this third festival commemorates what's just happened. God's freed us. God's delivered us from the bondage of sin. God's been gracious and he's merciful and he's purified us. He's the only one who can save this. And because of that, we owe him everything. We owe God everything. He deserves all that we have. He deserves our life, our heart, our will, our surrender, our priorities, and our possessions. Now, that does not mean that you have to give everything up in order to live for the Lord. It doesn't mean you have to go today and sell all you have and sell your house and sell your cars and give all the money to the Lord. It means you have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to sacrifice everything. I was struck as I was studying about Abraham who's told after 100 years you're going to have a child. It's going to be a son. It's not going to be any son. It's going to be the son of the promise. It's going to be the son of the covenant. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abraham, and I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you more generational uh, people, more, what am I trying to say, more, more descendants than the stars of the sky. Like, you won't even be able to count them. There are going to be so many of them, and I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to bless you. And then as Isaac grows up, what does God say? Abraham, I want you to take that child, Isaac. You know the one, the son of the covenant? I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah. I want you to kill him. Offer him as a sacrifice to me. And the Bible doesn't say that for weeks and weeks, Abraham agonized and prayed and called to God and begged God and said, God, why? Why are you doing this? No, no, Lord, this can't be right. What does it say? It says the next morning, Abraham got up and he saddled his donkey and he grabbed some wood and Isaac and said, we're going to make a sacrifice. The son of the covenant, this precious child, why did Abraham do that? He did it simply based on the word of the Lord. Now the Bible says we have the word in flesh. And in flesh, he's come to go to the cross and to take our sin and to sacrifice it and to deliver us and to redeem us and to change us forever and to give us victory. So now he says, what I want back is your life. What I want back is you. The old hymn says it well, right? Jesus paid it all. Tell me the next line. All to him I owe. 
Oh, we love the sacrifice of Jesus. Oh, praise the Lord. God's forgiven me. I'm so, I'm so glad I'm delivered. I am so glad God's delivered me from sin. I'm so humbled by it. But, but now, wait, wait, wait. You want some back? You, you, want, you want me to give? See, Israel was rarely willing to give the Lord much of anything. So to illustrate how important it was, Look back at verses 9 to 13. God says, well, let me teach you about the mindset of giving. We're going to establish the feast of first fruits. When you enter into the promised land, I want you to take, when you're gathering that first harvest, remember, I brought you here. I defeated your enemies. I gave you this land. I promised it to Abraham who was obedient and trusted me. So, so when you take that first harvest, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring the first fruit, the first grain, the first abundance out of that harvest, and I want you to bring it as an offering to me. And when you bring that sheaf, that, that bundle of grain, it was barley because barley was the fastest crop. So, so the first crop that's going to come up is going to be the barley. I want you to take a big bundle of that and I want you to bring it to the priest. And the priest is going to wave it in the air. And that waving of the barley, of the first fruit, that's your offering before me. And I want you to remember and express gratitude that I brought you out of Egypt and gave you the promised land. That's simple, right? First crop, first fruit, bring the barley, good. We, we fulfilled what God said. But even that was a struggle. Because God wants to teach us some spiritual principles here, some, some personal applications. And I want to give you, I don't know, three or four this morning. Three or four applications about our giving, okay, that come out of this Jewish festival because God's word's unchanging. So 3,500 years after God says to Israel in Leviticus 23, establish the Feast of First Fruits, now today, January 28, 2018, Racine, Wisconsin, Harbor Rock Tabernacle, now God has personal applications for us about first fruits. Okay, you ready? Number one, bringing the first fruit is a grateful acknowledgement of God's provision. When we give first, before anything else, we are gratefully acknowledging God's provision. Now, as Israel stood in the promised land, having just crossed the dry Jordan River, having been delivered from their enemies after 40 years in the desert where they rebelled, but God didn't destroy them. He just created a new generation and he kept moving them forward. After they had been miraculously exiled out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery where they didn't call on the Lord till the last minute. As they stood there in the promised land, how grateful should they have been? They would have had nothing without the Lord, and God gave them everything. He gave them a land, occupation, victory, provision, protection, expansion, mercy, blessing. He gave them everything. They deserved nothing. They had been nothing but complaining, rebellious little creeps. And God says, nope. We're still going forward. We're going to cross the Jordan. I'm going to give you victory, and you're going to settle in the land. Because I told Abraham back in Genesis 12 I was going to do this, and I keep my word. How many of us know that we'd be nothing without the Lord? Think about all God's done for us. The cross. The empty grave. 
the literally hundreds of thousands of sins that God's erased. His word that people died for. Never treat this book casually. Never throw this in the back seat of your car. I talked to somebody this week. He said, I never put anything on top of my Bible. People died for this. There's a whole museum in Washington now where they have where people died for this book. Don't, don't, don't throw this around. Don't toss it. Don't let it get crinkled. This is a sacred book. We get to study his word this morning. We get to have his Holy Spirit. We get the body of believers to encourage us. We get prayers that are answered. We get daily provision and mercies that are new every morning. We get comfort and help in times of trouble. We get his constant presence. We get his power through the Holy Spirit. And on and on and on it goes. Now, now how can we say, well, Lord, we're not grateful. I have nothing. I'm worthless. My life is over without the Lord. I have nothing without him. But because of him, I have everything. And he says, a small measure of your gratitude, I want you to bring what's first to me. And I don't want you to do it like, okay, here it is. Here's my first. You come joyfully. You think about all I've done for you. And you say, thank you, Lord. I wish I could give you more this morning. First fruit is a grateful acknowledgement of God's provision. Second, first fruit shows our dependence on the Lord. This is where it gets tough. Israel had to bring the first portion of the first crop. So they were affirming, Lord, this is the best. This is what we've got. So we completely trust you that the rest of the crop is going to turn out fine and that that's going to sustain us. Because what happens if there's a drought? What happens if there's too much rain? What happens if the soil isn't fertile? At that point, we have nothing because we gave you the first. This is one of the most challenging aspects of giving the first fruit of our income because like our walk, like everything in our walk, it becomes an issue of faith. Can I trust the Lord? Can I, can I depend on him that if I give off the top, if I give what's first and I place him first, that he will keep his promise and he'll provide everything that I need. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands because I'm pretty sure it's everybody. We live paycheck to paycheck, right? Most of us. And, and even after the paycheck, it's like, yeah, I need another paycheck. I need a fourth job to be able to pay. So you say, well, all right, great concept, Paul, but giving first, that's, that's pretty scary. Yeah, you know what? Walking by faith requires trust. It requires believing what you don't see, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Because if you can see it, then you know that you can control it and you know you can depend on it. So giving first root is a significant act of faith. It's trusting that when we honor the Lord, first and foremost, he will provide what we need. Now let me be very, very clear. This is not so-called prosperity theology. Well, you give and God will bless you financially in return and you send 30 bucks here and oh, you'll get this and you send that and you pray this and you say this word of faith and all this kind of stuff and God will just, God will keep giving and giving and giving you stuff like he's some kind of, uh, uh, you know, claw machine, like he'll just keep giving out. 
That's wrong. That's wrong. It's bad theology. It contradicts the Bible on a number of ways. But here's why it's really wrong. You can't teach it to everybody. Try going to Haiti and saying, the reason you live in poverty is you don't have enough faith. Try going to China and saying, the reason you're being persecuted and you have to meet underground and hide yourself is because you just haven't said the right words and God hasn't given you all the junk that he's supposed to give you. Try, try doing that. Try telling the believers in Iraq we're having their heads cut off. Uh, no, you just, you just, you haven't said the right words. God will give you an airplane if you just believe. That's not this. First fruits. We're not about, God is not about just giving us materialistic reward. Well, you're faithful and God will give you a bunch of stuff. No. The love of money is the root of all evil. So how does that work? It's about trusting the Lord that he'll keep his word and he'll give us what we need. Now, third, bringing the first fruit, this, this is the next thought, bringing the first fruit means not giving him what's left over. Now, some of you are thinking, what left over? And you know what? That's exactly the point. If we wait until we consume all we feel we need and all we feel we want, we will never give it all, let alone out of abundance. It is no surprise that evangelical Christians give 3% on average. Why? Because they're not following the principle of first fruits. Listen, life's expensive, right? How much of our spending is an absolute necessity and how much is discretionary? Remember the stat from last week? The average Christian gives $17 a week. We had to go down to a concert yesterday that Annie was in down in Illinois, and we had uh, five of us, and we went into Starbucks because we had lunch, and we thought, well, we'll just grab a couple drinks and, and you know, a couple sandwiches that were wrapped, you know, 18 days ago in China, and it's okay. They're going to be fine. $23. Put my credit card in the slot. I'm like, $23? Like... I got three sandwiches and three sugar drinks, and it's $23. Now, I'm telling you that because $17 is what the average Christian gives on Sunday morning. I blew 23 without even thinking about it at Starbucks. Who doesn't need any more of my money? One-fifth of your cell phone bill, 17 bucks. Now, I'm, I, I'm not going to get into picking apart our budgets, right? Because that's not what this is about. The Holy Spirit is telling us, I believe this with all my heart, he's saying examine the priority of the use of money. Examine the priority of your spending. Some of you are going, well, Paul, come on. I never spend $23 at Starbucks. Good, I'm glad you don't. God bless you, that's awesome. But we all have to look at what we have. And here's the bottom line. Is what we're doing and spending wise and is it honoring to the Lord first? Doesn't mean we can't have fun. Doesn't mean you can't buy your mocha, frappuccino, latte, light water, whatever thing that is that we do, okay? I'm not, I'm not being a downer this morning. I'm just saying, does the Lord come first? Does the spending come first for the Lord? Because he says first fruits. Now what's left over, I want what's first. Fourth, bringing the first fruit sanctifies everything else. 
Bring in the first fruit, sanctifies everything else. Look back at verse 14. He says, you're not allowed to eat of the new corn until you make this offering to me. And by doing that, you're essentially setting aside the whole harvest to me. Romans eleven sixteen, the Lord says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. Which means if our hearts are sanctified, if our hearts are dependent, if our hearts are sacrificial to the Lord, that's going to impact everything else in our lives. So if the root's holy, if my heart's holy, if I'm right before the Lord, if I'm saying, Lord, you're first, if, if God's first in my heart, if that's really my MO, then everything else I do, every word, every action, every attitude, every act of service, and every use of money is going to fall under that because if the root's holy, the branches are too. And a tree only bears the kind of fruit that's consistent with its agricultural DNA, right? Pear tree bears what? Tell me. Pears. An apple tree bears what? Apples. An orange tree does not bear grapefruit. It bears oranges. A tree is known by its fruit. Jesus says, you, my children, you're identified and known by your fruit. So if the root is holy, the branches are holy. You can claim to be a Christian. You can claim to be a disciple, Paul wrote. But, but if your life is full of sin and you lack love and you don't care about anybody and you keep running back to your sin nature, well, then you know what? Your claim to be a Christian, that's counterfeit. doesn't work. But if you say you know him, and you trust him implicitly, and you testify of him, and you look like Christ, and you're full of joy, and you serve him faithfully, well then your new nature, spirit-filled DNA is on display. Putting Jesus first, giving out of the first fruit in our money, and our time, and our service, that sanctifies everything else. Last thought, we'll pray. Bringing the first fruit reminds us of God's eternal work in our lives. Now, this is awesome. I want you to, let's really listen now to what the Spirit wants to tell us. Bringing the first fruit reminds us of God's eternal work in our lives. Write down 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It says, Jesus has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. That means those who have died. So it says Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruit of those who are died. Chronologically, this is so cool. Jesus' resurrection was on the exact day that the first fruits were offered according to the law. The day Jesus rose from the grave, that's the day when the Israelites were celebrating first fruits. So not only did he become the law, not only did he fulfill the law, not only did he become the Passover lamb, but he personally became the first fruit offering. So every single person who trusts in him is spiritually resurrected and we're giving an incorruptible body. In other words, we're the harvest of his grace. Oh, it's so beautiful. We're the harvest of his grace. We're transformed from death to life. And now he says, I've changed you. You're my harvest. Now you bring me the first fruit of your life and you present it to me as your offering. Because I bought you with a price. 
And then to affirm his work, it gets even better. You ready? To affirm this, he gives us his spirit. And what does his spirit do? His spirit imparts fruit on our lives. And the fruit is the evidence. It's, it's the tangible recognition that the Holy Spirit now indwells us and fills us. And God says, when that happens, you're no longer full of hate and anger and greed and hostility and evil and recklessness and unfaithfulness and selfishness. Now there's the first fruit of my spirit pouring out on you and what does that look like love joy peace say it with me patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control you get it before i'm this nasty crop that's withering and dying on the vine because there's no life there god says nope i'm gonna make you my harvest jesus will be the first fruit and he will give you his spirit and his spirit will fill you with fruit so you can now sacrifice it to me it's incredible incredible how scripture teaches us so our giving is not just okay bring my offering it's every aspect of our lives our thoughts our words our character our actions, our witness, our service. We're to give it to the Lord. Now listen, last thought. When we do that, listen to what the Lord promises. Write down Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. Here's what Proverbs 3, 9 to 10 says. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Again, that is not a material reward for giving. Well, Paul, I gave $500 today, so I'm expecting God to give me that new car. I've been pre- it's not what it means. It means you give to me, and I assure you, I will bless you. I assure you, I will provide for what you need. And as you come back and express your gratitude, I'll bless you again and I'll help you again. Because look, I'm not going to send my son to die for you. I'm not going to have him resurrect and be the first fruit offering. I'm not going to give you my Holy Spirit and say, now comes the fruit of my spirit and then leave you hanging. Oh, that's good. Saved you. What more do you want? Nope, you trust me. You give first to me. I will bless you beyond your comprehension. Not a yacht, not a lake house, not a new car, not a high-paying job. Nope, I will provide what you need. And how many know that's a fantastic promise from the Lord? Give to me first. I've always proven I'm generous. I've always proven I'm faithful. I've always proven I will provide what you need. So bring to me first. And when you do it, I'll answer. What's your first fruit? What do you need to bring to the Lord? Maybe it's the first part of your income. Maybe you've been given what's left over and the Lord's confronting you on that, challenging you on that. I don't mean that to be that direct. I'm just saying maybe that's something we need to learn now. Maybe it's intentionally at the start of this week 
setting aside time saying all right here's how many look with earlier I was looking through my schedule for the week and I was writing out all the things I had to do and frankly it scared me I thought how in the world am I going to get all that work done this week by next Sunday but the Lord convicted me and said all right where's my time before you start laying all of the different jobs you got to do this week what what time is set aside for me or, or maybe it's you know what? I need to give up my gifts and service. I need, to, I need to serve the Lord in a fresh way. I need to step out. I've been, I've been sitting in the chair. I've been waiting. I hear everybody else serving, but, but I'm not doing No, maybe it's time to step out. Or maybe it's all three. Maybe this whole concept of first fruit needs to engulf you. I pray that the Holy Spirit's going to teach us. I pray he's going to show us, each of us individually, what it means. But hear one thing, and we're going to pray. Whatever we do, the Lord's worthy of it. The Lord is worthy of first, and he's worthy of all. So let's thank him. Let's thank him. Let's ask him to teach us. Let's pray together.